Hey, just before we get going, I want to let you know that if you haven't discovered it yet, we do another show each month called ARR Raw. It's roundtable talks about motorcycle travel where I sit down with five other people, Brian Ricks, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Sam Manicom, Michelle Lampfair, and Grant Johnson to discuss all kinds of topics motorcycle travel related. Great conversation, good fun. Join us each month by listening everywhere podcasts are found or visit our website, adventureriderradio.com. Janelle and Stuart Clark are both engineers, both enjoyed traveling and exploring the Australian outback by four-wheel drive. Having so much fun with that, they decided to get out and really explore the world. So they began imagining a trip that would see them driving their 4x4 country to country, continent to continent, all the while exploring cultures and new lands. But as things began to get more serious, the planning stage, it became apparent that the cost of using this four-wheel drive would really eat up their budget quickly with shipping and fuel and all the other things that go along with it. And most importantly, it would limit the time they have to spend on the road. Then the idea of using two motorcycles came up and that seemed like a plan they could sink their teeth into. Soon they were on the road, two bikes kicking up dust for a trip that could be as much as two years long. That's how long they figured their budget would last. Well, it's been nine years since they left. They picked up some passengers though. So now it's the five of them on two motorcycles exploring the world. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Sam Manicum, Simon Austin, Simon Pavey, Bill Dragoon, Helga Pedersen, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie My name's Janelle, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I'm a full-time adventure rider these days. I'm Stu, I'm also from Sydney, Australia, and yeah, I guess I'm also a full-time adventure rider these days. Janelle Stewart, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. 
thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Really, really excited to be back. It's been some years since we talked. Matter of fact, I think the last time we had you on the show, it was uh, almost six years ago. And I kind of, I vaguely remember from that conversation, something to do with when you guys started out on this adventure, that it could be six months or something like that. Is that, is that correct? Two years. So our plan when we left Australia was to go around the world in two years and mm. then go back to Australia and pick up where we left off. <laughs> yeah, we we'd had right at the very start of planning, we talked about six months, but we quickly learned during the just the planning process that six months wasn't going to be enough time. So we drew it out to two years and family and friends back home were kind of happy with that. Uh, but we, uh, once we were on the road, we, uh, we learned pretty quickly that two years even wasn't enough to do everything that we wanted to do. So yeah, here we are nine years later. <laughs> and, and have you guys been traveling the whole time? Have you been home at all? Um, the last time I went home was in 2016. My grandmother turned 100 <sighs> and couldn't, yeah, couldn't miss that. So I went, we both went home for that. We went home together for a couple of weeks, but I haven't been back since. I went back twice in 2018 as well. So um, that's just for family reasons. But other than that, no, we've, we've been uh, away from Australia, been traveling for, for the nine years. But we have spent, we spent a little bit of time, a, a couple of patches in the UK um, doing some work between, moving between continents. Right. You're, hang on. I'm curious about your grandmother. You, you said she turned 100. And of course, you don't get that very many times, do you? In, in, no. in a lifetime, 100. Is that common for your family or is, is she an anomaly? I think she's probably an anomaly. Although looking at my mum now, my mum's 75 and she's great, great for her age. So it maybe maybe it's a, a family trend. Maybe I've got a lot to look forward to. <laughs> that's incredible. Jeez, that's, that is a... That's an amazing birthday. You certainly don't hear that very much. But what really surprised me with this is that you guys haven't been home that much. I mean, even though you've went home a couple of times, you've been gone so long. Now when you go back, people are going to say, you look older. I hope they don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, to be honest, actually, I think we've aged quite well. We don't, you don't have the same kind of stresses when you're traveling, um, you know, it's not like mortgage repayments and and uh, work stresses. The kind of stresses we have are very short term and the kind of things where at the end of the day you go, well, I can't do anything else right now, so I'll go to bed and then that will be tomorrow's problem. <laughs> no, don't, don't get me wrong, Janelle. I'm not saying that you look old. I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> you seem like you got your back up there for a second. <laughs> I'm not saying you've aged Poorly. I'm just saying that it's a long time to be away from yeah. home and, you know, people are going to look at you yeah. and say, I mean, you're going to look at them and say the same thing. My, my point is, though, anyway, <laughs> without offending you, is that that's a long time on the road, you know, from from two years to now. And there's there's so many things in there that, that um, so many questions with that. I mean, like one, how do you how do you manage to pay for for all of that? I mean, let, let's start there. How do you manage to stay on the road this long and still eat? I think the key to to the finances is um, making your money go really far. We've learned we learned pretty early on that we how to do things very cheap and how to um, really just make just make every dollar stretch. So um, yeah, you just become very good at that, I think. But also, 
we we'd saved a lot before we started. So, um, yeah, we I think we were in quite a fortunate position. We we had really good jobs back home, and um, uh, also just before we started travelling, I I was in the Australian Navy, and I had a deployment that really gave us a, a good injection of money into our into our bank account. Um, so we were in, we were just in a really good position. We'd we'd been putting money away for a lot of years, and we had a chunk of money. And then we worked out a daily budget. And to start with, we were spending about a third of what we expected to spend. So straight away, we we had a two year budget, which we knew we could actually last for six years. So I think a lot of things went in our favour really well. But we also we had planned quite well for it. But yeah, now. Nine years later, things definitely get harder at this point. And you, you get you have to get creative if you want to keep it going. Um, so you know if, if you if you like to write and you like to take photos, we've got friends who who make money um, publishing in magazines. Um, we've not really gone down that route, but we did start our own business. Uh, so our motorcycle dog carrier, the Pillion Pooch, we got a lot of interest just in our travels, and then. We took the opportunity in 2018 to start a business. Um, we saw that as a way, a great way of doing what we love and sharing it with people and also making a bit of money. So we started a business and that definitely helps. Um, and yeah, you, you have to look for creative ways to, to try and keep the trip going if that's what you want to do. Um, we have stop and work, so that's we've made money that way. And and now we're looking at writing books. So that's and that's something else that uh, travelers can do. You're traveling with three dogs on two motorcycles. You guys left with the dog, didn't you? I mean, this whole trip sort of started out with riding with a dog. Yeah, right from the outset, we we had a, a dog in Australia that we was always going to be part of our trip. So um, so we planned everything around her. We we actually. We bought a dog carrier for her from um, from the US, a company called Beast Riders that make a dog carrier more tailored towards the cruiser market. And yeah, she um, she wrote, we rode around in Australia with that for a little while, but um, she had some problems. So we we went to uh, we she, well, she had some anxiety issues with with riding just being open. So we decided we needed something that covered her. So we designed this um, the, our the pillion pooch, and um, but before we left, she was actually diagnosed with cancer. So, mm. um, so she, yeah, so she 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 passed away. We had an amazing time with her. She she travelled about six months with us from the US down to. Uh, Brazil, um, and she ended up passing away in Venezuela. And we picked up Wheaty in Venezuela. She was a street dog who'd been quite badly injured, but uh, she was as fit and healthy as she could be when we adopted her. Um, and we thought, okay, that's fine. You know, we've got we're traveling with another dog. We were set up for a dog. It was a little difficult at first because uh, she wasn't Skylar, um, but we got to know her and and. And it was great. It was great for us and it was great for her. And then we picked up Shadow just before we left South America. She was she ran across the road in Colombia and um car ran over her and we picked her up and 
we ended up adopting her and she's tiny. So we thought, oh, that's fine. You know, if you're traveling one with one dog to have another dog and a small dog, no big deal because they could actually ride really well together. But then um, not last year, the year before, uh, at the end of the year, we were in Turkey and kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then Azra, she was tiny. She was only probably five weeks old. She ran across the road in front of me and uh, and I pulled over. I had to pull over. We always stop. And there was just, there was nothing around. There was no mum. I tried speaking to some farmers. Nobody wanted her. So we kind of took her thinking we'd get her to a rescue centre. But um, when we got her to a vet two days later, she was really sick. She had parvovirus. And that is, that's pretty deadly for puppies. Um, um, Anyway, we took her to a vet and the vet kind of said, are you keeping her? Because this is a really this is really dangerous for me to have in my vet clinic. But if you're going to keep her, I'll treat her. And you know, there's there's not good odds that she'll survive. But if you want to give it a go, there's a course of treatment where she has, I think, five injections a day over eleven days. Anyway, she pulled through, <laughs> oh, wow. and uh, and we kept her. So yeah, that that did make life more complicated because we never had a puppy before, and. Um, it's a big, like to take on an adult dog, you, you know them, they are who they are. Puppies change a lot, as we've discovered, <laughs> over over the course of growing up. And uh, we didn't know if at some point she might decide she didn't like riding or she might not like riding at all. And then that would change everything for us um, because our dogs do come first. But fortunately, she's loved it and she loves traveling and she gets on with the other two. And now it just feels like it's always been the five of us. You've got two motorcycles. You're yeah. traveling around the world. How many dogs can you collect on the two bikes as you travel I know around the no world? More. No more. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a no lot more. of dogs. I would think <laughs> yeah. one would be, you know, something to deal with because all the the whole thing with border crossings and you guys have crossed a lot. How many borders? Over a hundred borders. It's 107 countries. Uh, a few of them we've been back and forth multiple times. Different um, borders. Yeah, you different get a borders. different experience at a different border. Yeah, I don't, the actual it would be interesting to know how many borders. Because I mean, going up between Chile and Argentina, going up through the Andes, I think seven times we crossed between there. Um, yeah, it would be oh, really interesting actually to yeah to, to to count the country. I mean, between Canada and the US, there was a couple there, and the, and Mexico as well. We went. Uh, came and went so yeah, yeah. I love so and, and of course every country you're going in and out of the country but when you leave the country on average is is, is it an issue with the dogs or is it only going in or um, leaving no yeah leaving no one no one really cares leaving unless yeah, you, actually, unless you're going between countries where they are strict so if you were going between the US and the UK then when you're leaving the country, they make sure, you know, the airline or the the cruise ship or whatever, they make sure you've got the paperwork so that there's no issue when you get the other to the other end. So they don't get stuck with the dog. That's yes. right. It, yeah. I, don't think, I think the airlines don't want to be turning around and sending the dog back. And, and they don't want to do irate passengers. Yeah, they don't want the, the bad <laughs> right. press associated with that. So they'll normally check very thoroughly. Yeah. We've um, we've had them on, on flights and uh, on the cruise ship and – um, yeah, they, yeah, they've always made sure that everything's in order before we get on board. And if we, if things weren't in order, they wouldn't take us. But land borders, um, generally know that they're not checking when you leave. And for most countries, when you, when you get in, um, they're really just looking for the rabies vaccination and uh, not, not even the teeter test for most countries in the world. What is the teeter test? 
So the TED test says it's a blood test to check that the antibodies are working correctly. So you do the process normally for uh, like for Europe or in the US now and Australia definitely is that you, you have to microchip your dog and uh, then you need to give them the rabies vaccination. Then 30 days later, they do a TETA test to make sure that the rabies vaccination is the antibodies are actually active. So in, and if you, you don't do it in that order, then it's not valid. So it's mm. it's really important. And they they want you to microchip it, I assume, so you don't swap the dog out. That's right. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So a- after all these countries, 107 countries, and who knows how many borders, is it easy to take dogs with you around the world? Like if somebody comes to you and says, hey, we're, we're running about taking our dog around the world. What do you think? What, what, what level of hassle is this overall? Uh, I, I would say really it's not a hassle. Um, of all of the, the challenges you have at borders, for example, mostly, uh, mostly it's bikes that we, we sort of have the, the problems with. It's not so much the dogs. But when you're within a country, that's when perhaps it could be a challenge. We've got our bikes so we can get around. Some countries are quite pet friendly, so you can take your dogs on public transport. Uh, other countries are not at all. It's very difficult to get around or you have to put your dog in a crate. Um, we had we experienced that in South Korea when we were without our motorbikes because they were shipping and we were getting around on in trains and, and taxis and you could take your pets but they all had to be in a crate. So we were lugging around three crates for three dogs and wow. our muscles in our arms got huge. Yeah. <laughs> so so what is this? You you push a, one of those trucks, the dollies along with the, the crates all stacked up or something? Oh, they have those at the airport. So it's yeah. great when you get to the airport, but train stations, no, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're, we we stood it. We, we stood beside each other and we ha- kind of had a system where Stu was holding two crates and I was, holding one but we were sharing the one in the middle and I was taking shadow because she was the lightest in my left arm and then we just kind of parade through a train station yeah (laughs) (laughs) it does sound like it could be quite a problem there's other questions I have though too about taking your dogs in other countries you mentioned some countries are are more dog friendly I've seen where you've taken them into uh, you know tourist destinations where anyway you're walking around with the dogs with you while you're looking at these things is everyone fine with that yeah, we we often do uh, the free walking tour or the tip based walking tours in the capital cities, and we normally will contact them beforehand and say we've got three dogs. Is it okay? Well, actually, more mostly it's been just with the two of them, but we've we've got dogs. Is it okay if they come along? And most of the time they say yes. Uh, you, you might not be able to go into a church or some of the um, the sites you might not be able to walk into, but for the most part it's fine. And yeah, the uh, the the tour guides normally don't have an issue with it when we're walking around most people that we meet in the city they'll stop and just and want to talk to the dogs no one ever stops to talk to us but the dogs <laughs> always get a good talk also um something we do it's sort of uh it's sort of not planned but we often end up in countries out of peak season so when there aren't so many tourists around that works well for us because things are cheaper and quieter and when things are like that um if it's a tourist activity and they don't have so many tourists, then we can we have some negotiating power. So we can often find someone if we want to do a boat trip out to an island and they oh, say no dogs. We ask around until we find someone who agrees to take us with our dogs. Yeah, we I took see, them right. Lake Titicaca. We took in Bolivia. Them in yeah. Bolivia, we uh, we we asked if we could take them out to the the Reed Island, the um, 
what are they yeah, called? Yeah, those the, the, the floating uh, floating right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, initially they said, "Oh no, no, that's not possible." And we said, "Okay, that's fine." We expected that, so we walked out, and they came after us. So no, 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 no. They wanted to sell us tickets, and it was it was a quiet time of year. So they said, "Okay, okay, you can take the dogs." <laughs> Oh, because I thought yeah. it would have been a, a problem. But like, well, so let, let's say, and uh, this is what I'm thinking is, let's say you're walking all around when you've got three dogs with you, you're, you're at a tourist location and one of the dogs stops to go. What do you do? Well, you carry bags. We, well, yeah, yeah. We, we <laughs> but you still got to scoop it up and scrape it off the ground or the floor yeah. or something. We, we go, we do this first thing in the morning. We take them for a long walk and they go to the toilet um, and then we do it last thing at night. Normally that doesn't really happen. And it's, that, that's, yeah. we, we have learned uh, over the years how to manage that because, okay, we, we, it's, it's never happened in a public place like that really, but we have had incidents on the bike <laughs> more when it's a new dog and we're just getting used to them. Um, and they haven't learned how to, well, we haven't learned how to communicate with each other. It's a two way street. And, um, yeah, they, uh, they've, been holding or they've been it's, I, I remember uh, Negrita to start with Wheaty as we call her um she was I, I think for like three days she didn't go to the toilet I think she just couldn't believe her luck she'd been rescued by a, a vet in in Venezuela who rescued a lot of dogs and had a lot to take care of and Wheaty was a particularly bad case and because she was very vulnerable she ended up being kind of chained up at the back of the vet and it was just because the vet had so many other rescue dogs that she had to deal with so that when he was in that position and that's exactly why when we came along the vet wanted us to adopt her because she wanted us to take her out of that situation so i think she was uh, i think she yeah she just couldn't believe her luck and how good life had become and she didn't want to ruin it by pooping right. <laughs> so, so then uh yeah after three days exploded. of nothing yes uh, and it happened on the bike <laughs> and it happened while we were riding so um oh, yeah no. so then, then we then we implemented a policy that we don't get on the bikes until oh, everyone well everyone's gone to the toilet so uh, and that works well yeah that works yeah. well and is that difficult i mean obviously it's part of your everyday existence right now but but is that difficult it seems like it take a lot of time no, I don't know why. They just seem it's, to do it. I think it's their preference as well yeah. to get up and go in the morning. <laughs> I think it, once it's routine, that's they know that, that they should be going then. And If they're on they good do. dog food and, you know, everything's kind of regular and healthy, then then it just that just happens. And we feed our dogs in the afternoon or in the evening at the end of a riding day, which means they're ready to go in the morning yeah. as opposed to feeding in, them in the morning and then trying to get them to go at night. Mm, I see. So with, with traveling with the dogs, does it hold you back at all? Do you find yourself not being able to, I mean, you said you're checking for things to see if you can, you know, go there with the dogs. Do you find yourself missing out on stuff? I don't think you ever really miss out when you're traveling. You know, if you don't do one thing, you do another. So when we're traveling, really the main thing for us is getting a feel of a country, um, getting to know a country and you do that just by walking the streets and going to the supermarkets and going to the cafes and staying with local people. So sites are just kind of a bonus and we do it when it's something we really want to do. And and if there is something we really want to do and we can't take the dogs, then we then we work that out. That's fine. We can, but we prefer to do things that we all do together and that kind of suits our style of traveling. That's a really good thing that you said. You don't miss out. I mean, if you if you can't do one thing, you do another. That's a really good point because there's a lot of opportunity when you're on the road. 
Oh, so much. Yeah, we <laughs> often hear people that will say, oh, you didn't see this or you didn't see that. But we, and and we, it, it's true, we probably didn't, but we will have seen things um, that a lot of other people don't. We go looking to go into the, to the back villages and, um, and find roads that are out of the way. And um, so we might not have gone to a, a waterfall that's got a lot of tourists around and everyone's seen, but we've seen something else that no one's seen and no one was around when we saw it. And yeah, it's. Yeah, it's it, just different. Yeah. What do you get from traveling with the dogs? Home. Yeah. I, I like to, like, it's one thing I, I, I really like about it is when we, when, whenever we go out, if we do leave them in the hotel room and we want to go out and do something, even if it's just to go out for dinner or whatever, when we come back and we open the door, there's now three wagging tails waiting for us and they're happy to see us. So it's, it's like it, it brings home on our trip with us. So we, we always, yeah, we, we always have that sense of home. That's and, and, and companionship. I know like there's the two of us. So, um, we've got each other, which is great. And that's really important, but, uh, but they bring something else as well to our little team that's really nice, particularly, you know, if Stu and I are having a bad day or we're arguing, and that does happen. <laughs> um, we've got our little friends that we can turn to. <laughs> right. Well, now you, you did mention that you, you started a company and you mentioned the Pillion Pooch. And I know we talked about it before, but I guess it's one of the, the upsides I was thinking with the dogs. You know, somebody could think it's a downside for, for traveling with a dog, but really for you guys, it's, it's turned out to be great because you, you invented something and, you know, you've got a company and hopefully this company is going to go and, and make you money and, and sort of pay your way. But what surprised me was when I just looked at the Pillion Pooch again before we talked and what shocked me was just how much work has gone into this product from designing the individual pieces to the whole packaging of it. This, this is a huge amount of work to do while you're traveling around on motorcycles and it's a full-on product, just like every other product you see that's, that's well-designed and, and uh, set up for marketing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, um, we started the business in the UK because that's where we were and they had um, some good programs for mentorship and grants to help us with a, a lot of things. Get small businesses started. Yeah, the small, UK's got some great programs. Yeah. Oh. Uh, both of us have an engineering background, so we could apply those to the design. And Yeah, well, we, we really, we wanted, if we were going to do it, we wanted to do it properly and we wanted it to be something we were proud of and something that we um, we wanted the product to be what we what we needed in a product um, and safety, you know, safety on a motorcycle is so important. So the only way to achieve that is is through a really good design. Um, so we did put a lot of yeah yeah, and we'd been, I mean, we'd been kind of tweaking it because we it was about four years, five years. Yeah, into we travelled with I guess the prototype, which was our original, which we didn't know was a prototype. Yeah. For four years, so we knew what we needed out of the product. We knew for for all sorts of in environments and and conditions, and and also just daily traveling. What what was important? What features are really do, do we need for the dog so that they're comfortable and they're safe? Mm, that, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking because you know when normally when you so a company brings out a product, they'll often give it to a bunch of people and they'll take it out and they'll try it because nobody does anything all that much. So everybody tries it and, mm -hmm. and reports back with their findings. But with you guys, you've actually been doing it day after day after day. I mean, you, you've got to have it perfected before you actually go in and start making the molds. 
Yeah. 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 The, the molds were, were costly. So, uh, so making it, making sure we knew exactly what we wanted was, was very important. And, and now this, uh, this is a device that goes on the back, sort of your back of the, the motorcycle and it's got, uh, the, the, the dog sits in a little pad, but it's actually covered with a sort of a tent. Yeah. It's a, a um, uh, PVC canvas cover. So yeah. It's like, it's like what they use on, um, on the side of trucks. It's like, it's, it's strong. It's, it's a lot stronger than tent material. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm. So that keeps yes. the dog inside and protects them from the weather as well. So if you guys get into a, you know, bunch of rain or, or maybe some hail, the dog can tuck in there and be fine. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, yeah. we a couple of years ago, uh, actually, no, it was 2019, we went up Norway and we went in June uh, to go up and see the midnight sun, picking that time of year because we thought that it would be great weather, but it rained every day. And, um, and it was actually, especially as we got towards the uh, – the top up to the top of Norcap, it was quite chilly. But we we put in a um a twelve volt heated pad in to the pillion pooch and mm. we zipped that up and it was lovely in there. We were freezing and we were <laughs> our, our wet weather gear was leaking. Uh, we were we were drenched. Uh, we were very uncomfortable and we really wished we were cuddled up with the oh dogs. My gosh. In the when, when, whenever we stopped and we because you can zip it up, so we did because it was so cold. There was snow all around us at the top. Um, Whenever we stopped and we, we pulled them out for a toilet break, they just popped their heads out like, oh, so toasty warm and really excited. And we had wet socks and wet boots. and <laughs> Yeah, they're like riding in a vehicle, like in a car almost <laughs> with yes, the heat on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's pretty neat. So that's, that's amazing. So that's your business and you can run that while you're on the road. Yes, we built the stock up. We have a fulfillment warehouse that orders come in. It's all automated. So we just really deal with emails and people contacting us to ask us about the product. But as soon as they put an order in, it just gets Very sent automated. through to the um, yeah to the warehouse and it comes off the shelf and gets shipped. So yeah, it's um it's a it's a it's actually a really good business. We just have to deal with restocking from time to time and. Um, getting in contact with our suppliers and getting everything shipped to the warehouse and the warehouse box it all up for us and put it on the shelf. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been a really good business for, um, for us, for, for traveling. You don't have to be there when you, when your new stock comes in, they'll take care of the whole thing. No, yeah. They take care of everything. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, it's amazing. Really good. So you're literally dealing, yeah, like you said, with emails, dealing directly with your customers, with the sales, and you can do that anywhere because you have internet everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a really good model. I mean, more and more people are trying to find out ways to make money on the road. I, I guess, you know, they've, they've always been, but in the past it's been more of, you know, you go to a country and you, you maybe pick fruit or you do other jobs like this. And now more we're finding people who are starting businesses, running businesses. And it's really interesting to think that you can run a business where you're selling a product and be on the road. I mean, that's amazing. You're not, you're not hauling a bunch of things around in your panniers to stop places that, go to local markets or anything, you, you're basically doing, well, you are, you're doing everything electronically. Yeah. It's really interesting how, when we go to a hostel, how many people are on their laptops working away at some sort of business that they're running whilst traveling. It's becoming, it's becoming really popular. I think it's really increased from 2014 through till now. Yeah. Uh, we've the, seen a big change. We've seen a big years. change and it's, it's, it's over half the people in a hostel now are, are working while they're, while they're traveling. It's, it's really, it's really interesting to it's see. It's great. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's really neat because it changes the idea of travel as far as how you have to do it. I mean, you guys said you, you saved up all your, a lot of money before you left. I mean, that sort of puts that model on its head because you could start yeah. out with less mm. money and just make your money while you go. And, and really it, it's open-ended. I mean, at that point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's what we, that's what we see in a lot of other travelers. And, just- and with, um, Online bookings, you know, booking.com, Airbnb, and they're the main two we use, but there's so many out there. You can find they do, um, you get rewards if you've been with them for a while and um, they do weekly discounts or monthly discounts. So there's there's ways, and that works really well if you're traveling and working and it's open-ended because you're not in a hurry to get somewhere and move on. So you can look out for those opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. It just made me think of when we spoke last time. I remember being surprised that you actually shared your sleeping bags with the dogs. Are you still doing that? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take just a quick break. I've got three things I want to tell you about, but stay with us. When we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about, including Africa, the trip to Africa, and how that sort of switched around for them. Stay with us. Well, a few years back, in fact, it was, it was a number of years back, it was 2019, March of 2019, we had a couple on the show that had traveled the world two up on their KTM 640 adventure. It was Heidi and David Winters. Now, on that trip, David broke his wrist and through a series of events, one being that he was the only one with, that was able to ride the motorcycle. But in any case, he had to ride his bike with this broken wrist or while it was healing. And it was very frustrating for him because he couldn't find any sort of throttle lock to give him relief. So he had a long, painful ride for quite a while. And it got him thinking a lot about a throttle lock. So when they got back from their trip, one of the things David did was he started searching around for the ultimate throttle lock. But he couldn't find anything that really satisfied what he was after. So he decided to design his own throttle lock, reinvent it, so to speak, which is what he did. He founded the Atlas Throttle Lock. Now, in case you aren't aware of what a throttle lock is, it's basically it holds your throttle in position as you ride. It allows you to loosen your grip, relax your hand and your arm, your forearm. It makes a huge difference for you and just gives you a, a little bit of mobility there where you can maneuver your hand basically without having to keep it locked in that one position. So, Back to the Atlas throttle lock. The end result was David was inspired by this by this problem he had on the trip to design this from his and Heidi's trip around the world. And what they made was this absolutely stunning, in my opinion, two-button throttle lock that works unlike any other that I've come across. And really, I always like to say it's Swiss watch. It reminds me of a Swiss watch or, or an Apple product, something that, that's like really high quality, but not only just high quality, but it works exactly like you would think it should work. It's got two buttons on it. Both of them have a firm, positive feedback. One is for engage, one is for disengage, and you can adjust it. You don't have to disengage to adjust your throttle lock. You just leave it engaged and you adjust it however you want. If you go up a hill, you add some more throttle down a hill, let a little off. The other nice thing about this is they've designed it in such a way that it can be easily swapped from one bike to another. But look, at go have a look at their website and, and see what you think yourself. It's called atlasthrottlelock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen. That's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. And I think we all agree that that makes good sense. Cyclops makes all kinds of LED lighting for all kinds of motorcycles, including CAN bus plug-and-play systems. Now, if you're having trouble finding a spot to mount auxiliary lights, which I ran into with my bike, 
sometimes it's very difficult to find a spot where they're not going to get hit or smacked or they don't cover some other light when you install them. Have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch auxiliary lights. These are seriously powerful auxiliary lights that just punch a hole in the darkness and command attention during the day. Now, I have these on my bike, and when I first turned them on, I tell you, I was shocked at the intensity of them. It's just incredible to get that much power out of a small light. Now, I've been running them for several years now, and they work beautifully. So long-term, they withstand everything, including the odd thump that they've received in, in my case. Not to mention, they look great as well. And they even have a model that has an orange ring light around the spotlight itself, so it's built into it. And that adds sort of a unique look to it, also grabs attention because you can turn those rings on by themselves or have them come on with the light. And, and that, again, commands attention. It makes people look at the bike because it looks different. And that's what you need to do with, with drivers to make sure that they see us. Cyclops has loads more lighting products for us riders. And by the way, Cyclops was founded and is run by a family, the family that started it. And they're also a family of riders. So when you deal with Cyclops, you're dealing with fellow riders. I really like that. Cyclopsadventuresports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. You know, we often take things for granted. I mean, you look at a pair of foot pegs, you think, okay, so you add a little width, maybe some teeth, and there you go. You got a better foot peg. Well, that may be true for some foot pegs in the market. Maybe that's all they go for. But if you want real foot pegs, then you'll want to look at the pegs that IMS products are making. IMS began way back in 1976. And over the past 47 years, they've learned a lot. Much of that has been from supplying off-road racers with the most durable products possible. And now all that expertise comes to us in a line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. All of these foot pegs are made with cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They all go through a certified heat treating process. They're built in the USA and they come with a lifetime warranty. Now, a company that's been around for 47 years knows how to offer a lifetime warranty. They do it by supplying superior quality products. It's not just how they're made as well. It's how they're designed. And that's what you get when you buy IMS products foot pegs for your bike. You know, when you see a bike sitting there with IMS products foot pegs on it, you're seeing a bike of a serious rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. It just made me think of when we spoke last time. I remember being surprised that you actually shared your sleeping bags with the dogs. Are you still doing that? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, we so, all fit just. just. I was wondering if it was just one of those things that, you know, there's sort of a, a period you'll go through and then you'll finally go, you know, I'm sick of having this dog. So so you have the dogs in your sleeping bags every night. Yep. 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 I mean, a lot of the time we, we do try and follow summer rather than the other way around. But yes, we've definitely been in cold places. And last year we were in, uh, as we got into Mongolia, I think the, we were kind of ahead of the weather. There was this cold front and I think it was 20, 21 degrees highs of 20. I think it was even a 27 degree day as we were crossing. But the day after we arrived in um, Ulaanbaatar, it was seven degrees. And then the next day it was snowing. It was, mm. we were really, really lucky to be ahead of that. Um, well, it was, but we were watching it. We, we, were, we were watching it very closely. Following yeah. us. 
And we met a French couple who were unfortunately uh, a week or two weeks behind us. And we, we saw, we got the updates and we saw the photos where they just got hammered by this cold front coming oh, <laughs> across to Ulaanbaatar. I felt so bad for them. <laughs> but because we, because we try and, 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 and follow the summer, um, when we're camping, we're all sleeping on top of the sleeping bag anyway. So, um, when but it's, everyone's but, in the tent. But, yeah, everyone's in the tent. But when it is cold, it is great to have everyone in the tent in the sleeping you pack, bag. You pack the dogs because, around you, oh, yeah, like your feet. They're little, they're little hot water bag, uh, hot water bottles. Yeah, right. I, I, okay, I got that backwards. See, what I'm thinking is, I'm thinking you're you're doing it for the dogs. You're not doing it. You're using the dogs. <laughs> 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 Well, that's funny. Dog lovers. Only dog lovers will get that. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately. Yes, that's, that's Everyone right. else will think we're weird. Yeah, that's right. But but when you're a dog lover, you tend to, yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, I get it. The last time we talked, you guys were headed for Africa. Because what you did to begin with was you left Australia. You came uh, over to North America. You, I think you started in the U.S. What, Texas? Was that where you started? Yeah. Yeah. So you started in Texas. Then I think you did South America and maybe some of, some of Canada, et cetera. But you were headed to Africa. What was that like? Um, it was challenging. It was different, so different to South America. We thought it was going to be uh, along the same lines of South America, but it was... Um, it was very different. Yeah. Suddenly we needed we needed visas for a lot of countries and we don't buy visas in advance because we don't really know when we're going to a country. Um, so we, we would... Yeah, we we were actually really lucky. In 2017, there was kind of this sweet spot where you could uh, get visas pretty easily. Uh, I think it was in Bamako in Mali. We got like four different visas for countries coming up um, and it was pretty easy to get through from uh, West Africa down through Nigeria, um, down to Angola and South Africa. So I think we were we were lucky that we did it in 2017 that there were no um, big challenges that I think some people have experienced since since then. As far as like West Africa, it 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 was it was difficult for a number of reasons. I mean, it's there's a lot of corruption which we hadn't been we hadn't seen it to that kind of extent uh, that we saw in in West Africa. There were challenges in getting the visas and and some countries that were a block if you hadn't organized the visa beforehand. Um, the DRC was was one of those countries, Democratic Republic of Congo. We we needed to pick up the visa in uh, the consulate in Togo was one of the only countries offering a visa that, yeah, outside of your home country. So um, a lot of all, all the other um, travelers that we'd met doing the same thing, had picked their visa up in Togo. We didn't actually even go to Togo, but we'd heard about this military plane for flying over. So the DRC only has a small gap uh, where that, that goes to the coastline. Like it's a huge country, but most of it's nearly landlocked except for this tiny little bit that follows the um, the river down to, to into, the, um, into the ocean. And we'd read about a, a military plane that was operating between Cabinda which is a part of Angola, just north of this um, of the DRC, and then the rest of of Angola. And because we'd read this about this military plane, and it seemed really easy, you just turn up and you pay a, a bribe essentially to um, to the military, and they'll put you on the plane and fly you over. Bikes as well. Bikes as well. Yeah. Because we read about that, we kind of 
Uh, put all our eggs in one basket. Yeah, we just figured, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll be doing that. that. That's work. what you'll we do. You'll, you choose that. Yeah. That'll be a great story. Right. Yeah, we don't need we don't need the visa, and we kind of uh, we'd also read about a ferry option as well, or a barge that you could go around if if the military plane wasn't working. So we thought we had fallbacks, but all of them weren't an option when we when we got there. We Just went, the military plane. Well, the military plane yeah. wasn't was kind of on off. It was they they weren't willing to take us uh, when we first arrived. But after five days of pestering and just turning up every day and we managed to um, to convince them, but it was it, it was just a, a stress, especially by the time we got to that point, we were quite exhausted with in, in West Africa and to, to hit this kind of wall and, and to think you, you've got down this far and now you've got no option you say exhausted though, like, I mean, are you exhausted like from, from the ride or from dealing with the bureaucracy and, and corruption? I, I, I think, I think a combination was, of, yeah, there was a lot. I mean, West Africa also was, um, it was the first time we'd really seen, uh, well, pe- people have a very difficult life. So when people have a very difficult life, animals also have a very difficult life and you really see that. And that's something that I guess, well, it, it really, I found it difficult, um, quite upsetting. Most days, you you would see this. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. seeing seeing the level of poverty, um, I think that kind of uh, hits you hard. Um, it's kind of it's hard to explain, yeah, but it, it is. is. It was exhausting. It was, and and when we once we did get down to like Angola, because even in Nigeria, there's oh, there's a lot of people who. Um, there's just doesn't seem to be a very good healthcare system there. There's people in a very bad way just all over the place and it's got a huge population. But, you know, when we got down to Angola and Namibia, there was kind of this relief um, getting into countries where people were and animals are sort of better taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. We'd actually, we got, when we got to South Africa, um, Janelle was, was kind of had had enough of Africa and wanted to just to yeah to back to Europe and and look at traveling on onwards from there, but I really felt like we'd miss we'd miss out on the east side of Africa. Um, the east side had so much to offer, and and everyone I'd spoken to or anything I'd read about the east side of Africa was was very positive. Um, so I did manage to convince her that we we should we should continue up the east coast and it will be completely different and it it will be a lot easier and and it was it was a completely different trip it east- was it's really set up well for tourism pretty much from namibia down to south africa and then up the east it's it's a, a well traveled route for for overlanders and for tourists flying in there's a lot there's a lot of um yeah there's a lot set up for tourists where there wasn't so much in west africa Going back to you, your military plane and you'd put all your eggs in one basket, what was that like? So sort of describe the situation. You said you kept going up, you having to go back. It seems kind of weird to me to the thought of going up to bribe someone at a military place. How did that work? <laughs> well, actually, there's a little bit of the story we left out. Uh, when we were in uh, Point Noir in Republic of the Congo, um, we got our visa for Angola and we happened to meet a Spanish couple, Mar and Lewis, who were traveling in their four-wheel drive. And they didn't, they did have the visa for the DRC, but they didn't want 
they didn't really want to do it because um, as you get closer, you hear a lot about the stories and the bribes and everything. And it's, it's tough going, getting through that section of the DRC. So we convinced them to come to Cabinda and do the military plane. <clears throat> so when we turned up, they'd actually been there for oh, almost a week trying to get on this military plane not having any success and getting very stressed. And we turned up and actually they did tell us they would put us on the flight. But we knew if we got on the flight, there was no chance our friends were going to get on with their four-wheel drive. So we just kept going back every day as this convoy. We'd go to a hotel, same hotel, in the morning, pack up and we'd all go down, having been told, yes, tomorrow you'll get on it, and then being told, no, in the morning, come back tomorrow. And it we we were really, I mean, but Stu and I, it wasn't the end of the world. We had time, but our friends, they were on a bit of a deadline. They were traveling in, in uh, three-month periods and they had to get their vehicle to South Africa and then fly back to Spain for work. So we had to, we had to do something and we started using desperate measures and Mar and I started putting on the waterworks. We were crying at the general and we were just so lucky. There were these, um, the Chinese are, are doing a lot of, there's a lot of investment in Africa. And there were a couple of Chinese businessmen at the military base. So Mara and I went over and we just started pleading with these guys because they're using it to move goods between Cabinda and Luanda, the capital, for, for, for business purposes. And we pleaded with them. And next thing we know, we're actually on the manifest, all of our vehicles. Uh, so there's no bribes. And the next day we were on that plane and uh, an hour later we were in Luanda. We drove off, no questions asked, off we go with our journey. So- wow. Once we were manifested on the flight, the, the military had to move us. They couldn't, they, there was no more bribe. So, it, yeah, they, they just they had to do what was on the manifest and, and move us to Luanda. So it worked out really well for us. We got lucky. Well, yeah. you were very persistent too. But I'm, I'm curious about that. So when you show up in the morning, what do you do? You walk up to the gate or something. You say, hi, we'd like to talk about a bribe. I mean, <laughs> how do you no, approach you, you that? Need to speak, you need to speak to the general. Yes. It was the general. And then if the general sees you, then you, you know, one or two of us would go off and, and you're packed up ready to go. So all the vehicles are there, but they don't let you actually into the air, into the airport section you're just parked outside one of you're the, in the military base in the military not. base but not yeah there's like these there's these golden gates that you want to get through um so you go in and you go and see the general and he doesn't say very much uh and then and and we're, we were quite open about the money we said you know we've got the money here's the money <laughs> can we get on the plane today <laughs> and, so you're just you're doing it right open you're, you're holding the money out oh, sort of adam and saying it's it's yeah. right here for you look this military plane ends up being filled with, um, are they refugees or know. illegal immigrants? I'm not sure. People people trying to get to Angola that are illegally. That's what this plane ends up being around our bikes and the vehicle. We ended up, we sat in the four-wheel drive with our friends, with our dogs and everything. And there were so many people packed into this plane, uh, illegal people, they, uh, they were actually sitting on our bikes just trying to find space to squish all these people in that I'm, I think they're taking, they're obviously taking bribes to move them to Luanda. <laughs> That's crazy. Is that a rooster in your background there? They're out in the distance. Yeah, uh, I thought I heard a yes. rooster there. I heard a rooster <laughs> calling. So it, it, it makes you wonder then why would you have to pay at all 
if all yeah. the refugees are, are on there, I mean, who's paying for this? Is it, is the military picking up the tab? It's military run. I, yeah, I do not really, I did not understand what was going on. I've never really understood how corruption works. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's a service that, it was a service that ran daily to, so because Cabinda is this. Um, it's isolated. Yes, yeah. enclave to the north of um, of the DRC all by itself, uh, just to supply the community there. It's, it's supposed to be a, a service for them. It's mostly used by the, um, the the Chinese businessmen and the oil companies and um yeah, to move goods around. There's there's always shipping containers. It's it's a massive Russian aircraft. Fits a, a shipping Truck, container in there. Come on and, and off, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, it was huge this thing. And it's just yeah, it's going back and forth daily. I know that the the purpose of it is um it's funded by the the government and the military it's not meant to be for tourists, yeah. No. So it's bizarre, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But um, you, you mentioned corruption, though. Like, so what sort of corruption? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, Mostly, what we experience is is low level. So at borders, you know, you need to turn. You, you want to turn up to a border knowing exactly what you have to pay for your visa, exactly what you have to pay for insurance, um, and for a, a temporary import permit because we, we've never actually used a carne. We always use the tip option if if you have to do anything at all. Um, if you don't turn up knowing that, then you get you often get people saying, I think just, just recently when we crossed from Cambodia into Laos, the guy at the boom gate, I went up to show him my passports. All his job is he just has to check the passports and then we move up to the immigration and customs buildings and that's when we do everything. But he asked for, uh, I think it was 70,000 real. He said, you have to pay 70,000 real per bike. And I said, okay, sure, but can I have a receipt, please? And he goes, no, I won't give you a receipt. I said, okay, well, I think I'll speak to the people up in the building about getting a receipt if I need to pay 70,000. And he said, okay, just go. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. You get a lot of that in a lot of countries or they want $2 for, for stamping your passport or the police pull you over and they say, oh, your indicator doesn't work, pay $5, the low-level stuff. Yeah, other than that, it's just being in, like in Nigeria, the roads are absolutely appalling. Um, the the power goes on for a few hours at a time and maybe six hours in total all day. So all of the, the houses or any of the hotels or anywhere has a generator if you're lucky, um, if they want to have power throughout the day. So it's just, and I mean, Nigeria is a, an oil country. It, it should be, it's got a huge population to deal with, but in Lagos to have power outages all the time, it's just, you know that there's, um, you can just, it's, it's corruption you can see that, Things aren't filtering down properly, but and they in Nigeria is actually an odd country because there were these billboards everywhere saying report corruption and and the police. I think it was just as we uh, or just before we went in, maybe six months beforehand or something. They had a change of government. And they put up all these billboards and they were really their policy was to crack down on corruption. But of course, they're only cracking down on the low level corruption. But the police were was in Nigeria. The police were fantastic to us. They they would ask us, um, do we have something for them? Do we have a gift? Yeah, do we have a gift? 
and we say, oh, no, sorry. And they'd say, okay, okay, you can go. Um, and any, if you, if you mention that you thought they were being a bit corrupt, they were like, no, 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 you can go, you can go. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so it's, it's sort of working then, I guess. It is, it is working at the low level. <laughs> so what's the higher level? Well, the electricity and the roads are absolutely appalling. The infrastructure is, it was one of the worst countries in Africa for sure for, um, yeah. for the roads and. And the power. And yeah. The, yeah. You mentioned when you got to South Africa, Janelle would sort of had it with Africa. And I imagine, you know, just the, the wear and tear, obviously, from from going down the route that you went. Would you go back? Would, would Africa be on your, your destination or is it on your destination list for the future? We, yeah, we really want to go back. Um, there, there were There were definitely countries in West Africa that we missed. We sort of took the shortest route through. So we missed a lot of countries along the coast. Um, which we'd really like to visit. And and really the main reason at, the, at that time was we were having to buy visas for every country and we didn't have a lot of money and we were thinking, how are we going to make it round Africa? Yeah, and I think, I think one of the issues last time, why, why um, Janelle was kind of wanting to move on after South Africa, was it, it was the length of time we'd spent and we were looking. We'd been six months by the time we got to South Africa and, and that was six months of, of rough roads and rough countries um, just rough going in general and the thought of another six months of being so rough I mean South Africa was definitely a break from that uh, South Africa was wonderful in that regard having service stations and really nice hotels and um, definitely back to a western country but then to turn north and Janelle's perception was that we would be going through all that again um yeah, was uh, was not what she was. She just wasn't keen on that idea at all. So, so the idea of turning um, around and heading right back, backtracking basically all the way back up to North Africa. Yeah, mm. yeah. Which she, she just thought that the east was going to be exactly the same as what we'd seen in the west, and um, and and six months more of it. So you did end up. You, you did go down to, to South Africa and then turn around and head all the way up the east side. Then we did. We, we did. Yeah, all the way yes. up to Egypt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What are you looking for when you're when you're traveling around? What, what what do you do? What do you head for? And our purpose really is is always culture. We we want to meet the people. That's what we find most fascinating about about travel. It's yeah. I think as I said earlier, the um, the sites we we like to to we do like to see things and and go out and. and and see mountain ranges or waterfalls and things, but we don't really like to be too much in amongst crowds. So the really popular places, we um we love, but we love we love to ride. Yeah, I mean that's when that's really what we love: being on the bikes and and moving short days or big days, off road, on road, whatever it is. That's what we really love. And every country offers something slightly different when you're on the roads. Oh, that's interesting. So you've really fallen in love with the bikes. I mean, I, maybe that's kind of an obvious thing to say after this many years on the road, but <laughs> but I know that before you left, you were four by fours, right? You, I mean, you took the bikes because yeah. it was yeah. it was due with finance, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was very, very practical reasons that we picked motorbikes. And I thought really they would just be about getting from A to B and and that was kind of it. But no, we've really, bikes and the biker community, I mean, the the motorcycle community around the world, I don't think there's anything quite like it. Um, maybe I'm biased, but bikers all around the world have been so helpful and and so welcoming. And it doesn't matter what bike you ride, what country you're from, 
they're always ready to they're always keen to meet up and and talk and um and help out yeah it's just and we've had some we've really great. fallen in love with the whole thing motorcycles yeah. motorcycle community all of it <laughs> What do you do with, with that knowledge though? So you, you get to know locals a little bit in, in a country, you get to understand a little bit about their culture, you know, like, cause part of what you're saying you're doing, you know, is, is you want to experience other cultures. What do you get from that? What does it help you with? You feel, you feel connected. Yeah. I think it's a, just, um, enriching it. it uh, you learn, you're always, you don't even realize what you're learning. I think half the time. Yeah, I think it re- you really realize what you don't know. Um, yeah. We even, even um, you know, somebody asked us recently, you know, after nine years, is there anything still to see? Like, why do you keep going? Are there any new experiences? There absolutely are. Like last year we had our <laughs> first communal toilets and showering. Yeah. We yeah. managed to get nine years without ever having to do that. So, so that happened. Um, and that was interesting. And yeah, we had to, you know, uh, learn how to, to do that comfortably and not worry so much. So yeah, you take, you take things away from. I think it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I find it really exciting to, to, to learn about how other people live and to, I mean, when I'm sitting there squatting at a toilet and there's someone squatting right next to me, um, that's that's it's something I never thought I'd ever experience, and now I have. Um, and it may be something that no one really wants to experience, but it's. I was just thinking that <laughs> as you said it. <laughs> but there's there's also a lot of um, so something we've sort of discovered over the nine years is um, uh, happiness is linked to gratitude. Um, it's very, if you're not, if you don't feel grateful for what you have, it's very hard to feel happy. Um, so, and, and you, you learn all different forms of gratitude, meeting other people and, and appreciating what they have and how they live and what you have and how, and how you live and what you can learn from them as well. Um, and, and not just us, but the dogs as well. And yeah, it's sort of, it's very hard to very hard to put into words. It's a but, tough question. Yeah. It really is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then. In what ways have you changed because of your travels and because of, of the things you've learned on the road? Maybe maybe collectively, like the two of you, um, but also individually. I think I think I'm very I've, I think I'm more understanding of of people. Um, I think I probably didn't really appreciate where people were coming from a lot of the times. Um, and I think the traveling and meeting people from, from so many different cultures and, and how they live. Um, yeah. And when I look back on, on opinions I had on, and how I thought about the world, uh, yeah, I, I, I it really surprises me, but I, I know how I did. I know, yeah, the way I I, uh, I thought about, um, uh, not thought about people, but uh, misunderstood people, I think. Um, yeah, that's that's changed a lot for me. So do, do you feel that you know humans better through travel, like in a general sense? 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think when you, when, yeah. I don't think totally. I don't think I, I totally understand people, but I think it's a lot better than it was. I think, I think we were very much in a bubble. We, we had, um, yeah, we we're very, uh, close minded and, um, yeah, just had really had no idea about what was going on in the world. I mean, and we actually had traveled, uh, uh, but we traveled, we, we traveled as Westerners travel. We'd been to resorts and, um, uh, I, I traveled with the, the military, but it was always very protected. You, 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 you only saw what um, you were allowed to see really. And, um, yeah, going out and doing it by yourself really opened your eyes to a whole different world that I had no idea existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Janelle, how about you? Uh, well, I think uh, along the same lines as Stu, but um, I guess more specifically for me, I've become a lot more confident um, and and patient as a as an individual. Yeah, I think it's I've it's realizing what's for me what's important in life and um, and seeing seeing that throughout the world is actually is something we all have in common. Um, at the end of the day, you know, people want to have a, a home and they want, um, if they have kids, they want their kids to be happy and have opportunities and they want to be able to get together with their friends and their families. Um, and and you see actually where you really see what's important in life is actually in, in the poorer countries. Um, they kind of get it <laughs> better than in the richer countries. <laughs> Uh, so I, I think, yeah, and realizing that, yeah, that, that, that we're all, yeah, we're all the same really. Um, and that everyone is good. Well, not everyone is good, but like 99.9% yeah. .9 of the world are good people and they want to help you. And especially when you're really in need, uh, they'll, they really, yeah, they go out of their way so much to come and help you. It's, it's wonderful to see. It is human nature, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think, you know, you guys would see that better than, than most of us because you've been so many places and spent so much time on the road. But it is human nature when push comes to shove for people to help. You know, someone falls, somebody reaches out automatically with a hand. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's how it should be, yeah. I, I agree, I agree. Do you know, the things you mentioned, though, that you just said that, you know, you you sort of you said that they get it in, in poorer countries and you said you sort of understood what the thing, the things that really matter you mentioned home and, and friends and family, and I think you'd said, those mm -hmm. are things that one might look at what you're doing and say, but you don't have. We do have it just because we don't, because um, we're not in the same place doesn't mean we don't have it. And and for sure, we it has been a challenge being away for so long, but we do, we are lucky, we have great internet and we have uh, various platforms we can have video calls but we've you, yeah we we make friends along the way and we meet up with people in different countries and we have each other in the dogs so uh we're not i uh, yeah i wouldn't say that i wouldn't say that we're we definitely we're not running away from that and i don't feel like we missed out on that um wherever possible we've we've tried to get people to come and visit us as well uh, my mum's come over a few times to visit us. Mm, that's nice because that's an excuse for their for for someone to go somewhere, like your mom to go somewhere that she wouldn't have otherwise yeah. went. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, 
yeah, and do something quite different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, it's not like you need to be where you were born to have home friends and family. It, that that's not what you're saying with that. You're saying that, but that are, are the that is the important things in life. Those are important values for us in life, or the or the important things to us, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And and what about the the thought process with you know, 99.9% of the people you, you said there that, um, Stuart, you said that are good people. Do they sort of come in, like, do you get closer to strangers with that thought process? Yeah. So you, tr- you we, that we don't have, so when we set out, when we set off from Australia, the assumption was that people were going to try and steal things and, you know, we needed to put our bikes, we needed to park our bikes inside hotels yeah. and protect them. And and there was this awful, like, security alarms going off in our head all the time that you couldn't trust people. And, and in certain countries, you'd think it was, you know, it was going to be worse. What we've learned over the years is that you you trust people instantly. There's no reason not to trust them. And we don't park our bikes anymore inside. Our parks get uh, our bikes get parked on the street. We leave tank bags on them, and we don't leave our passports or our wallets out or anything. And we are very security conscious about the dogs. I don't want anyone stealing one of my dogs. Mm-hmm. But um, we, yeah, we don't don't worry. The, the The assumption now is that you that we we trust people, not that people are going to do something wrong. Wow, that mindset must completely change the way you feel day to day. I it's mean, to lovely. Walk, yeah, to walk yeah. around being worried. And because and, all the things you said are all the things that run through everybody's mind when you're going somewhere, you know, well, how are we going to be secure? And how do you protect this? And all of that stuff to the other one of just walking out and and knowing that you're amongst 99.9% of the people that are good, you can relax. It's yeah, it's it's draining when it's the other way around. When you're when you're constantly worrying, you know, did I set the alarm on that people have alarms on their bikes and um carrying all their stuff inside and oh my gosh. Um yeah, we see people the extent that, people go to yeah, worrying about people that have put their bikes in undercover uh parking and are still chaining them to posts and um like what, people what? seem to be very, very security conscious and worried and for, Maybe for good reason they've had a bad experience. Yeah, maybe or they had a bad experience. But um, but yeah, I I, uh, I would I, I'm I'm I like being very relaxed about it, and nothing has happened with any of our um any of our stuff, and I uh, I can't see how it really would. And and just to complete that that painting, you know, it's not that you're oblivious to risk. You obviously understand no. when you go into certain places. I mean, if you're uh, you you spent time in the UK. There's a lot of bike theft in the UK. I mean, you're not just going to go and say, "Well, we'll just trust and leave it on the street." I guess part of part of the thing for us is, you know, we've had the same bikes for the for the nine years, and they they look rough. Yeah. I mean, if someone did steal one of our bikes, it would be a big mistake. They would regret it. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't look like shining. We had we never clean them unless we absolutely have to. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're right in that, uh, you know, it, it's, you're more likely to have a theft in a Western country. Someone's, yeah. someone's not going to, well, yeah, they're not going to come into the hotel here and, and, and steal these bikes. It's, it's, it's not really worth anything to them if they did. And it's quite an effort to do. So, um, uh, yeah, there's, there is, we, we definitely are 
when we're in a big city, we would be more careful about it. But generally, we do leave them parked on the street. Yeah. It's not. We stopped worrying about that years ago. Yeah. And and sometimes we come out, I mean, they do look odd. They they look unusual. People, you know, have never seen a, a motorcycle dog carrier on a bike before. And we come out in the morning and there's often footprints on our seats. Yeah. And <laughs> people have been climbing on them and taking photos. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just metal and plastic. So, yeah. What's next for you guys? Are you staying in the road? Is this going to be the, you know, the lifestyle for you for years to come? I I don't, honestly, I honestly don't know. We actually, we came to Southeast Asia um, at the end of last year en route to Australia. Um, so there's, without going into the details, because it's really boring and complicated, <clears throat> getting dogs into Australia is quite complicated. Uh and at the end of the last, at the end of last year, we were across the policy. knew We knew everything we had to do and when. It takes about six months. So we came to Southeast Asia this year. Australia surprised us and changed the policy. And now we can't go to Australia from Southeast Asia. So we've changed our plans, and it now has us heading further away from Australia. So really I yeah I'm not sh- I'm not sure. We we would like to get to Australia and we'd love to ride around Australia because we've never done it. Uh, and it would be great to do with our dogs, but yeah. At the moment the plan we we this changes week to week, but we we're, we're hoping to travel to um, the US and Canada and we need to find somewhere to spend 6 months that's on an approved list for entering Australia. And in Asia, it's South Korea, Japan, Singapore, places that are very expensive to stay in for six months without an income. So um, not really uh, convenient for us, but I've actually got a, a brother in, in Canada who's very kindly offered to let us stay with him rent-free for as long as it takes for us to get the, the dog sorted. So um, so that's uh, that's looking like a very good option for us. And we'd also use some of the time to tour around. But once we get into the US and Canada, we our, our time for the six months starts as soon as we enter. Um, so that's looking like a likely plan. And but then when, when we're in North America, then, you know, Mexico and yeah. Central America and South America <laughs> are just there. <laughs> so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> you guys are from Australia. Yeah. But you've never yeah. ridden around Australia. No. But you've no. ridden around most of the world, <laughs> yes. but just not your, <laughs> your home country. Will, will it feel weird to go home and tour Australia? Like almost almost anticlimactic in a way because you're back in your own country. Have you ever thought about that? We have thought about it, yeah. And actually in Southeast Asia, there's some areas we've been through that look like Australia. They even have Australian trees growing here. So you can kind we kind of picture what it might be like, and it's it's exciting. I'm I'm really excited about riding around Australia. It's such a big country, and there's so much and, and so many different things to see. I mean, it's not. Uh, I mean, it is one big desert and a little bit of green on the sides, but it's a. Uh, but <laughs> but we, we want we to love meet the, the Australians living out there yeah. in that. We want to see what it's like, see how mm. they treat us. <laughs> Because yeah. it, it will be very different. We've been we, yeah. we lived in Sydney. Um, we always lived in cities. cities. But yeah. So so going out and we I mean we we travelled the country by four wheel drive, but you don't get the you interactions. Interact, yeah. 
in a four wheel drive. And, and we also, we did it very quickly. We, we did a lot of trips. We saw a lot of the country, but we went away for two weeks at a time and, and rushed out to some outback town and then did a little bit of touring around and then rushed back again. So this will be very different. This is, this is something we have been excited about for, since we started, we, we knew we were going to, we always wanted to finish the trip with a tour around Australia and mm. really see the country. So yeah, it's, it's something that's exciting. What will you do if you go to Australia, you do a tour around Australia and everything works out fine, you enjoy it, and then you decide to settle down? What will you do? I don't know, really. Mm. Expand Pilly and Pooch, maybe. Um, I don't know. I really, uh, it is something that we've kind of been battling with or, well. I just don't know. I mean, what we've, so the last nine years, everything is just sort of, it's never really been much of a plan. Things have just happened. So I kind of imagine it'll be the same. Mm-hmm. We'll, that something will pop up that makes sense and we'll follow that path. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Janelle, I, I really enjoyed talking with you and I look forward to seeing where, where you guys end up going afterwards. We may even get to meet you when we come to North America. Yeah. Oh, that's, that, that would be cool. That would be great. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Thanks so much, you guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, bye, Jim. I was speaking with Janelle and Stuart Clark on the road somewhere in Thailand, I think. They've got two websites. One is for their travels. It's called packtrack.com. The other one is for their Pillion Pooch dog carrier, and that's called pillionpooch.com. We've got some amazing photos from their trip as well as these links on our website in the show notes for this episode at adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Max BMW, MAXBMW.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear, GreenChiliADV.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at Motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at CyclePump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks of course to our producer Elizabeth Martin and you for listening. Thank you very much for being a part of this. This show is built on a model of advertising and listener support so if you're not doing it already we would really appreciate it if you would drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on support. The other thing you can do for us is give us a rating anywhere you find podcasts even on Facebook but but mainly where you see where you find podcasts you can give us that five star rating that will let other people know about the show. Anyway time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much once again for listening and I'll talk to you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 